Hello and welcome back to the Line to Gain show. This week we're doing the 1980s NFL football. My name is Jeremy Dixon. Here as always with Mike Parker. Mike, how you doing, man? Doing great. Really excited about this episode. Uh, the 1980s is when I first have my first memories of football. Yeah. So not only do I know what happened just stat-wise and who won Super Bowls, I actually have perspective of being there. So I'm really excited to walk through that today. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's get started with our, our stat guy corrections. Yeah, I guess the, the first one is going to be during the uh, fantasy football draft. Uh, I said Fran Tarkenton was the NFL leader in all-purpose yards. That was incorrect. A ridiculous comment. That's what he said. No, I'm not saying <laughs> yeah, that. I, yeah, right, right, right. All-purpose yards are defined as, quote, the combined – I guess it's not a quote, but they're, they're defined as the combined total of rushing, receiving, punt-slash-kick return yards – interception returns, and fumble return yards for a particular player. This does not include passing yards. Current all-time leaders for all-purpose yards in order is Jerry Rice, Brian Mitchell. That's pretty surprising. A lot of Uh, kick returns. Yeah, right. Uh, Walter Payton, Emmitt Smith, and Frank Gore. The immortal Frank Gore. The immortal Frank Gore. Still technically not, not retired. retired. Yeah, he was in bold when I looked at the list. So. <laughs> All right. Somebody nice. out there, he's waiting for you to give him a call. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I could think of a couple teams, but no, it's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, so we also had some confirmations slash clarifications that we wanted to get out of the way. We were having a discussion about O.J. Simpson um, run, being the first to run for over two thousand yards, and he did it in a fourteen-game season. He was the only player to achieve that feat in a 14-game season. The next person to do it was uh, Eric Dickerson in 1984. He ran for 2,105 yards. That's still the record technically by yards. But if you were to extrapolate the average yards per game for OJ over a 16-game season, he would have ran for 2,289 yards. That would have been the record, you know, presuming that he continues with that, um, that yardage you know, right. in the games. So one of the questions that we had, um, we were pretty solid on how we, we determined a 16 game season, but there right. was like that extra game. And I was like, I don't know how they determine it. So just a quick run through. So we play six games in our division, two, uh, one away, one home. So for the Seahawks this year, we'd play the Rams, Cardinals and 49ers twice. We play uh, four games versus one complete in conference division. So NFC uh, North, South, East in this this year the Seahawks played for example the NFC North so we were playing the Packers Lions Bears Vikings we also play four games in an out of conference division in the AFC this year it's the AFC South so I'm Titans Jaguars Texans and Colts um, we play two games against uh, in division rivals that finished at the same place we did so if, for example we put we finished f- first place of the NFC West. And so this year we would play the uh, first place of the NFC East, which is the Washington football team, and the first place of the NFC South, which was the Saints. So we've lost to both of those teams so far this year. And that must cycle through too because we miss the North. The NFC North. Oh, but we're playing the whole NFC North. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, gotcha, gotcha. And then for 
All right, and for the 17th game, this is the one we had uh, a question about, like how do we determine uh, who we played on that 17th game? So what it is, we play one game versus an out-of-conference division team that finished in the same seat as uh, the previous year as we did. So, um, and that is two years away from cycling back to full division games. So in this case, it was the AFC North, and the first seed was the Steelers. Right. So the NFC West doesn't cycle back uh, they played the North in 2019 and won't play them again until 2023. So you see that that they were picked in that gap that gap year. Sure. Yeah, I mean, okay, that makes sense now. Uh, yeah, and so we uh, also had a question as to why the Seahawks and Packers game was on CBS, uh, which Fox owns the NFC games. The NFL has instituted a cross-flex mechanism that allows the NFL to move games across its broadcast partners. This allows for broadcast partners to have a presence in a particular market and splits marquee games between CBS and Fox. Right. So typically a NFC matchup is supposed to be played by the Fox or Fox affiliate. Right. And an AFC matchup, so two AFC teams, for example, play under CBS. And if, yeah. if it's an a interconference game, um, the home team is who determines who's supposed to broadcast. But okay. occasionally... Uh, because if you look at the AFC and the NFC, they're very separated kind of regionally. Um, so um, what they've come up with is this ability to cross flex these games. So the NFL says we have a, a, a marquee matchup here. We have the Seattle market and the in the you know Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Green Bay market, and we're going to flex that into CBS. So CBS has exposure to that um, that audience. So you had a question about what the the legal clipping zone was, and I, honestly, it was a great question. I, I had no idea. So clipping is a 15-yard penalty in almost all circumstances, but there is a close line play where it's legal. That is basically you're engaged um, with a person on the line of scrimmage. Um, so it is above the knee in a close line situation. That is the legal blocking zone, so or clipping zone. So you okay. can go low on a player as long as it's not below the knee and you're you know, engaging in close lines, close line situation. Okay, that makes sense as well. All right, so we were unsure if Steve Largent played a game for the Houston Oilers last week. Uh, Largent was drafted in the fourth round, number 117 of the 1976 NFL draft by the Houston Oilers. He played in four preseason games and was on the list to get cut, but was instead traded to the Seattle Seahawks for their eighth-round pick in the 1977 NFL Draft, which became Steve Davis, a wide receiver from Georgia, who clearly did not do anything to the level of what Steve Largent finished his career with. So it was the wrong Steve, the wrong wide receiver. Um, I mean, maybe they had some wide receivers there, but, I mean, we got a Hall of Famer. He played four preseason games. He wasn't going to make the cut, right. and we're lucky enough to make that. Sometimes we fall backwards, the Seahawks, that is, into, yeah. <laughs> into talent. Absolutely. So another clarification. Um, I think we both knew that Tony Dorsett had won a national champion, but we wanted to confirm that. So we, we are confirming, yes, he did, in fact, win a national championship in 1976 with the Pittsburgh Panthers. He also won the Heisman Trophy that year. Nice, nice. Uh, and we were had a question on who was the 1984 draft pick the Colts got for John Elway. And 
there's more to come on that later. Yeah, we have a little bit of, like, we're going to talk about that, I think, in the ju This Just In section, uh, yeah. one of our categories. But, um, yeah. yeah, I rewatched the Elway to Marino 30 for 30, mm -hmm. just for context of this whole interaction. So, yeah. um, really crazy. It's a good watch. You should check it out. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen it. I will rewatch it. Everybody check it out. So the final thing I want to discuss in this um, stat guy section was I think last year I was trying to articulate how um, expansions in leagues kind of dilute the talent pool and create a vacuum. So um, there's really two things that I think happen when, when you have an expansion. Um, good, good players uh, are moved to, uh, to another team. Um, and they do this primarily because they have things called expansion drafts. So generally, when we add teams to a league, basketball, football, baseball, the teams have to designate, the existing teams have to designate players to be drafted by the new teams. Yeah, we and, just saw that this summer with uh, the Seattle Kraken. They're expand they had an expansion draft. Exactly. NHL did, yeah. And really what that is is to fill the roster. So you have to have, I think it's 53-man roster for each uh, football team, and I think you can carry like seven or eight on the practice squad. So let's just round it up to 60 players need to fill that roster. So you can't do that in a seven-round draft, you know. Right. So you have to fill it some other way. And the way they do that is take existing talent from, from other teams and uh, put that, you know, put them on the new expansion team. Now, what that does, obviously, is it takes, you know, talented backups, uh, depth, and all the things that are very necessary in the NFL to compete and moves that to another team. So all teams essentially, to a certain degree, have to rebuild this um, increases the number of players ultimately in the NFL. So you're adding another 120 players um, that, or roughly, that wouldn't have made the league prior. Right. So you, in order to do that, all teams have to backfill. So it, you take players that wouldn't necessarily made the league and, and you put them in. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, the really good teams, lots of stars, lots of depth. They're at an advantage uh, when competing against the weekend teams. So um, this was particularly highlighted in the NBA analogy that I made last week with Michael Jordan deciding to come back after um, that baseball stint because he saw an opportunity with the weekend talent pool. The NBA added the Toronto Raptors and the Vancouver Grizzlies. The Bulls designated a major contributor in the previous NBA championships, B.J. Armstrong, and he was selected first pick in that draft. So basically, he took um, a starter, and they lost that team. They were able to, mm -hmm. to maintain their core, however. So it weakened the Bulls, uh, but they were able to add Tony Kukoc, Dennis Rodman to that roster, and you know the rest is history. So, um, so as the, the talent in the league gets diluted with all the movement of contributing players and the drafting of more people, it's an opportunity for these well-run teams, talent-driven teams, to take advantage. Um, of course, over time, um, the incoming talent catches up with the avail available roster spots and it kind of equalizes out again. But you see that kind of vacuum in the two or three years after an expansion where, you know, the league quality kind of dips. Yeah, uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. And, that, you know, we've seen that in the, 
I mean, the Jaguars coming into the NFL, the Houston Texans. Yeah, this, it, we've seen it firsthand a number of times. So, um, but yeah, let's uh, you know, let's get to our dynasty by decade rules, Mike. Let's do it. All right. So you must make the playoffs in a given year to earn points. Uh, to be the quote dynasty of the decade, you must win at least one championship or Super Bowl. Uh, teams will earn points based on how far they make it in the playoffs. One point for a playoff berth, two points for a conference loss, three points for a conference win, four for a Super Bowl loss, five for a win. Team can win a total of nine points uh, as a maximum every year. And, you know, this is going to help us determine our champion and runners up for the 1980s. Yeah. So let's get to the category, start talking about diving into these 80s. Um, so. Before the 1980 season, this is it really starts off with some contention. Uh, before the 1980 season, Al Davis asked to move the Oakland Raiders to Los Angeles. He wasn't the stadium wasn't up to par. He wasn't making the money with the luxury boxes and he wanted to move his team. Um, the NFL voted against the move 22 to zero, which prompted Davis to essentially sue the NFL for violations of the antitrust laws. So the 22-0 is 66% of the league owners at the time. They basically, once they got to 22 votes, they're like, all right, it's done. So that's why that that kind of weird number. And I I wonder what their apprehension was for moving because the Rams were already gone from LA, correct, at that point? Yeah, but but that that was Al's point. So the Minnesota Vikings were pressed. Well, the Minnesota Vikings, through Pete Rozelle, pressed the city of Minnesota to build them the Metrodome because of the crappy stadium. So they threatened, they had threatened on behalf of the Minnesota Vikings to move the team somewhere else in uh, order to, to get that city to, to give them a, a better stadium. And then they did the same thing in L.A. When the Coliseum wasn't working for them, they, the, the Rams left and moved to Anaheim and had a new stadium there. Right. So Al, when he comes in to do this, is like, hey, um, I want the same treatment. I'm not getting what I need here from a stadium perspective. There's this Coliseum. I have a, I have a deal with the people of the Coliseum to like add these luxury boxes and do all these things. Let me move. And Roselle said, no, your stadium's fine. Like, we don't see the problems that you're talking about. So this kind of starts this, well, we saw it in the 70s with the under, undermining of the Raiders. It, it seems like it really stemmed from their battles back in the uh, AFL uh, merger transition period from like 1960. It was really just 1966. That's when Al was the commissioner for the AFL. And right. when the, the merger was announced, obviously, Roselle took over. Um, as the, the commissioner for both leagues at the time. So it was really that moment that led us through this turmoil in the 70s with his issues with the Steelers, his issues with the NFL. And it really culminates here with Al Davis suing the NFL for violation of antitrust. Yeah, absolutely. That That's very, uh, very important thing in the in the history of the NFL. It'll be a theme for us, you know, for, the next, for, for, yeah. for this episode and probably the next couple. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So something I found kind of interesting, Mike, was that the Pro Bowl game in 1980 was uh, played in front of 48,060 fans at Aloha Stadium in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, it was the first time in the 30-year history of the Pro Bowl that the game was played in a non-NFL city, and obviously it stayed in Honolulu for years, and I think they just 
um, have gone away from that a few times recently. Um, and I don't know if it's back in Honolulu full time again, or if it's still, um, I, I actually, I don't even think they played the Pro Bowl last year because of the, because of the COVID. So I'm not sure where, where it's going back to, but I know they had experimented with having it in like Tampa and a couple other places over the last three or four years. So yeah, they moved it around from bef- the week, uh, in between the end of the playoffs and the Super Bowl, they right. put it in that bye week. Um, and then they had used to have it the, the week after the Super Bowl. Right. So they've been playing around with it. Uh, we'll get stat guy on this for the next episode. We'll talk about exactly how that's been laid out and kind of what the stat, the situation is now. Yep, absolutely. So to kick off um, the 1980, the decade, um, the first pick of the decade was by the Detroit Lions. Um, they selected the Heisman Trophy winner, Billy Sims, out of the University of Oklahoma. Yeah, so then, Mike, the Oakland Raiders, despite their owner's feud with the NFL, won the first Super Bowl of the decade, beating the Philadelphia Eagles 27-10. to And I know we've talked about it before, but that must have been super awkward for Pete Rozelle to have to kind of swallow his pride and and hand over the uh, Lombardi trophy to Al Davis. Especially at this point, because he had already sued the NFL. Yeah, that's got to be So he sues the NFL, then he wins the Super Bowl, and the guy has to hand him a trophy. (laughs) Got to eat a little crow there sometimes, though. Yeah, yeah. He did do it with some class, though, both cases in uh, 80 and 83. Um, just right. seemed to hold it together, which was good. Yeah. So uh, continue with our theme <laughs> of the Oakland Raiders. <laughs> um, the, in 1982, the verdict came down um, against the league. The court had found that they were, in fact, violating antitrust laws and not allowing the Raiders to relocate. So the beginning of the 1982 season, the Raiders played their first season in Los Angeles. Yeah. So um, after week two, um, speaking of the 82 season, uh, we also had a player strike um, that forced a shortened season. So after week two, the players uh, went on strike. So they missed weeks three through 10. Um, Weeks 11 through 16 were played um, per schedule. And week 17 was used to play divisional matchups needed for determining the playoff standings. So they definitely had less games, so they needed that extra week to kind of have matchups to really kind of hammer out who they were going to pick. So I thought this was interesting. They expanded the playoffs to 16 teams that year, just a basically yeah, old school, really like NCA tournament, like March yeah. Madness type tourney. <laughs> and um, two of those player, or teams, were the Lions and the Browns, had losing records. Um, they also abandoned the wild card and divisional rounds uh, and played the first round based on regular season uh, seedings. So they basically took the eight teams in the AFC conference and the eight teams in the NFC conference and stacked them based on their record that year and ranked them one to eight. Right. And then the one would play the eight, the two, the seven, and so on. And then they would just kind of whittle down from there. They did not reseed. Um, so just kind of whoever won that bracket went down. And so it was, must have been quite a, a playoff, fun playoff. A lot yeah. of a lot of teams that wouldn't have normally made the playoffs in there. Good for fan bases, I guess. Absolutely. So this is what we're talking about with John Elway, um, the 1983 draft. 
probably the draft that really set off the NFL. Um, yeah, made it popular. Like every everybody says, it's the best. You know, yeah, best draft. Elway, Jim Kelly, Eric Dickerson, Dan Marino, just uh, Daryl Green. Um, in the draft, there were eight Hall of Famers, seven in the first round. Wow. Uh, some of the players I, I had mentioned. Um, the draft was notable for another reason. John Elway, who was, dra- who was drafted by the New York Yankees, didn't want to play for the Baltimore Colts. And then prior to the draft, he says, you know, if the Colts pick me, I'm going to go play baseball. So he, had, he was like that first player that had leverage to kind of dictate. We see this again later in 2004 with Eli, Eli Manning, and yeah. the um, San Diego Chargers. Um, less contention between that and all the better trade value, or they got better trade value from it. Eli doesn't say much either, so he's... uh... We'll we'll talk about that a little later in the the show as well. Um, So several teams had reached out um, with interest to trading Elway, but um, no one wanted to pay the price that Ernie Accorsi, ironically the GM of the Giants during the Eli Manning situation. Um, So he was planning on calling Elway's bluff. He put that first pick in the second the draft opened, instead of waiting the 20 minutes or 15, 20 minutes to see if something, somebody somebody panics and comes in and gives you, you know, he just made the choice. And from there, it just went, went crazy. It just set off a whole bunch of things. So over time, like a couple days later, um, Robert Ursay, the owner of, of the Colts starts communicating directly with the ownership of Denver. Uh, basically panics and then trades the draft rights uh, for um, Elway to the Denver Broncos for their first round pick, Chris Hinton, um, a backup quarterback, Mark Herman, and Denver's 1984 first round pick, which became Ron Salt, guard in Maryland. Wow. It's, it goes down in history. It's, one of the, it's kind yeah. of one of the worst trades. Gotta be. So on a side note, um, I was re-watching, the, like I said, the Elway to Marino, and there was like, I think it was the sixth pick, the Raiders came up, and they had a, an agreement in principle that um, so that they handed over to the league. So basically they had said, we'll give you the number six pick, we'll give you one player from column A, which included um, Howie Long, and then one... Uh, player from column B and column B was I don't know a bunch of guys so it was these three players for that number one pick and once that got turned into the league the league called the Bears to verify that so the Bears were sitting at six Raiders wanted to come up okay and uh, that was the deal on the table we'll give you this guy number six pick you know for the number six pick yeah right um, somehow the Bears call back. No, 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 no. That we that was a misunderstanding. That's some way, and then it, the thing got called off. Um, the the agent for Elway said it was unprecedented that the NFL would get involved in a trade like that. So again, we have a situation where the Raiders were trying to move up in the draft to get John Elway, a transcendent quarterback. Um, who can throw the deep ball, which we all know Al Davis loves. And all of a sudden, the NFL gets involved. Now, all of the evidence to this is kind of 
passed away at this point, so there's no real way to prove it, but it definitely feels like there's been a lot of collusion and interference from the NFL as it relates it to Al Davis me of, uh, time. It reminds me of Chris Paul getting traded to the Lakers. Uh, and then rescinding and it. And then they, the NFL the rescinded it and said they can't do it. Because they were going to be too, I don't even know. Like, they were well, that, well the Hornets, the New Orleans Hornets, were actually owned by the team at the time. Or, or owned by, by the, the NBA. The NBA right. at the time. So he uh, came in and canceled the yeah, trade. After, and, after Tom Benson had died, I yeah. think, yeah. So, speaking of the Bears, Mike, in 1983 also, George Hallis, the owner of the Bears and the last surviving member of the NFL's second organizational meeting, died at 88 years old on Halloween. R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. And that was a big loss. I mean, I think he was, you know, the Bears are are that team of the Midwest that, that really kind of stuck it out there in the... And from the NFL perspective, anyway, the NFL side of things. Hallis so. definitely had a lot of respect with owners and yeah. with the league and, and with players. So and the family still owns loss. the team today. Right. So, so um, just seemingly to co-sign John Elway's uh, protest of going to the Baltimore Colts and their level of dysfunction, um, on March 29th, 1984, under the cover of, of Dark, um, the Mayflower moving trucks move into the Colts facility, basically pack everything up and drive to Indianapolis without really telling anybody. They, they just moved, up and moved an entire franchise to a new city. So this is one of those things that the NFL was kind of worried about, quote unquote, when uh, Al Davis wanted to move, is that if they allowed... If the courts allowed him to move, then, then then all the other happy owner, unhappy owners rather, would start moving, and we would see this like Ursay moves the Colts, St. Louis Cardinals move to Arizona. There's all of these changing changing things that happen. We have player strikes. There's a lot of turmoil during this period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jeremy. So um, I want I wanted to call this out because it, this was your first pick of the 1970 fantasy draft. Uh, Terry Bradshaw retires on July 24th, 1984. Um, he, and this is also funny because they had a shot at um, Dan Marino in that 83 draft. And shortly after that, you know, he blows out his elbow. I think the 83 season retires in 84. And then in 84, Dan Marino just goes on to throw over 5,000 yards and makes it to the Super Bowl. You know, the team that he beat in order to get to that Super Bowl in the conference championship game? Who was it? Those very Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, wow. So he... Wow. It was the last time that Chuck Knoll had seen <laughs> the playoffs. <laughs> that was the last time they were kind of relevant oh, under, under his realm. Wow. Yeah, well, speaking of the 1984 season, uh, a lot of all-time records were set that year. You mentioned Dan Marino passed for 5,084 yards and 48 touchdowns that year. Uh, Eric Dickerson rushed for 2,105 yards, setting the all-time rushing yard record at at that moment. And uh, Art Monk caught 106 passes, and Walter Payton broke Jim Brown's career rushing record. Right. So a lot of, lot of stuff. A lot of big numbers went down in, uh, in 1984 there. 
So a little Seahawks homer note as I was going through my research. Um, so the 84 season, Kenny Easley, safety for the Seahawks, was the defensive player of the year. And Chuck Knox, your favorite Chuck Knox, uh, coach of the year. Love it, Chuck. R.I.P. So uh, 1985, Mike, the NFL owners adopted a resolution calling for a series of overseas preseason games beginning in 1986, uh, with one game to be played in England or Europe and or one game in Japan each year, which is now you're seeing it. You know, we, we play multiple games each year and uh, we get to wake up early and watch watch them play in uh, in the UK at least like three or four times a year. And that's regular season now. So the game's popular. It's global. You know, these guys are, these guys are, uh, you know, Tom Brady and these guys are household names. Not that we ever send Tom Brady to England to go play in front of them, but it's usually the Jaguars versus the Browns or something. So, yeah, we don't usually send our best. We had some, a lot of preseason games where, you know, there were stuff played outside, mostly in, in England. Yeah. I remember Mexico City. They, they've had games down there too. A few well, times. Mexico City was the first game, regular season game outside of the United States. Oh, okay. And we have some stuff on that, um, I think, in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, also in 1986, Mike, the owners adopted limited use of instant replay as an officiating aid. Uh, also prohibited players from wearing or otherwise displaying equipment, apparel, or other items that carry commercial names, names of organization, or personal messages of any type. We've talked about that a little bit uh, in past episodes. All right, so in 1987, um, the NFL saw another player strike. Uh, they canceled week three altogether, and um, the strike lasted weeks four, five, and six. Um, the NFLPA players picketed, but the NFL teams used replacement players to play those three weeks. All right. Uh, you know, also in 1987, Mike, the NFL announces a three-year contract with ESPN to televise 13 primetime games each season. Uh, the ESPN contract was the first with the cable with a cable network in league history. Uh, the NFL's debut on ESPN produced the two highest rated and most watched sports program in basic cable history, at least at the time. Uh, Chicago at Miami on August 16th was shown in 3.81 million homes. And two weeks later, the Raiders at Dallas game was seen in 4.36 million homes. Impressive. So in 1988, uh, Art Rooney, the founder and owner of the Steelers, dies at 87 years old at, at, um, on August 25th. Uh, and also in that same time frame, Mike, a, a special payment program was adopted to benefit nearly 1,000 former NFL players who participated in the league before the current Burt Bell NFL pension plan was created and made retroactive to the 1959 season. Uh, players covered by the new programs had to have spent at least five years in the league and played all or part of their career prior to 1959. Uh, each vested player would receive $60 per month for each year of service in the league for life, which seems very small for like the, the amount of uh, pain those guys probably endured, you know, playing with no face masks. And yeah, I don't know how it, how it works out for them. Like whether it's a good amount of money for the time yeah. or, or not. But I mean, I guess the, the cool thing about it is just thinking of those players. It definitely lays the groundwork. We see a little bit more of the NFL 
working with the NFLPA and those types of scenarios, healthcare for, you know, concussion mm -hmm. stuff. And it's, they, it does get a little bit better over time. Players do definitely fight for this and, and their yeah, negotiations. Absolutely. So 89 brought us kind of a sad moment. And in my opinion, a great moment. So let's start with the sad moment. Pete Rozelle retires. After going round for round with Al Davis, he's exhausted. And in a press conference at the NFL meetings before the 89 season, he announces his retirement. Him and Al um, did reconcile a little bit um, in that moment. Um, Al was definitely very sad. Um, Pete Rozelle, he was exhausted, it really felt like. <laughs> so, and I, and I can't blame him. So um, the replacement commissioner was uh, Paul Tagliabu. So the happy thing, for me anyway, was that 89 draft. I think that was the first draft that I really like followed and followed players from. Mm -hmm. um, I know teams like the 85 Bears were huge for me. Right. Um, but this 89 draft was what I would mark as the first moment where I started to follow players and teams outside of the Seattle Seahawks. So that 89 draft brought us five Hall of Famers in the first round. So we have Troy Aikman, first pick, third pick, Barry Sanders, fourth pick, Derek Thomas, fifth pick, Deion Sanders, 20th pick, Steve Atwater, and then also a couple of fan favorites, or at least my fan, I, me being the fan. A 13th pick went to the uh, Cleveland Browns. It was Eric Metcalf. I love that guy. And then the 22nd pick, Indianapolis Colts, Andre Risen. Did Andre Risen play for the Colts? I didn't even know that. He was drafted by the Colts. That's crazy, yeah. man. Um, so a couple other things happened in 89 as well, Mike. Uh, Jerry Jones, who everyone knows, purchased a majority interest in the Dallas Cowboys on April 18th. Uh, also, Art Shell was named the head coach of the L.A. Raiders, making him the NFL's first black head coach since Fritz Pollard coached the Akron Pros in 1921. Wow, I didn't know that. Yep, yep. And the other thing that I thought was interesting, speaking of draft and, and trades more, more uh, specifically, in 1989, uh, on October 13th, the Cowboys traded running back Herschel Walker twice a second team all pro selection along with three draft choices third round pick in 89 a 10th round pick in 1990 and a third round pick in 1991 to the vikings in return the cowboys received the biggest haul ever in nfl trade history they got linebackers jesse solomon and david howard who i've never heard of cornerback isaac holt and defensive end alex stewart in addition to the players, the Cowboys received Minnesota's first, second, and sixth round picks in 1990, first and second round picks in 1991, and first, second, and third round picks in 1992. Dallas also received running back Darren Nelson from Minnesota, who they promptly traded to the San Diego Chargers for a fifth round choice in 1990. Uh, this pick was then sent to Minnesota. In all, the trade involved 18 players, actual players plus draft picks, and really was what built the dynasty of the Cowboys for the early 90s. So. Yeah, I believe the, the picks from that uh, transaction led to Emmett Smith and um, Darren Woodson. Darren Woodson. And uh, yeah, the, there was, it, was, it was unprecedented. And right. it's still, I mean, there's never been major contributors to their Super yes, Bowl run. Absolutely. 
All right, here's the next category called the teams. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you give me the American Football Conference starting in 1980? So 1980 uh, decades started with uh, the AFC East consisting of the Baltimore Colts, Miami Dolphins, New York Jets, Buffalo Bills, and New England Patriots. Uh, AFC Central had the Bengals, the Cleveland Browns, Pittsburgh Steelers, Houston Oilers. Uh, AFC West was made up of the Oakland Raiders, Kansas City Chiefs, San Diego Chargers, Denver Broncos, and Seattle Seahawks. Thank you. And uh, the NFC um, consisted of, in the NFC East, we had the Cowboys, Giants, the St. Louis Cardinals, Eagles, the football team. And the NFC Central was the Vikings, Bears, Packers, Lions, Buccaneers, and the West, 49ers, Rams, Falcons, Saints. So that rounds out the uh, 28 teams going into the 1980. Uh, season. Yeah, and so in 1982, uh, the Raiders relocated to Los Angeles, California. No change, still 28 teams, just changed from Oakland to Los Angeles. Yeah, and then 84, and we mentioned earlier, the Colts relocate to Indianapolis. Again, still 28 teams, just a relocation situation. And then in 1988, the Cardinals relocate to Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, still no change, just uh, 28 teams. Yeah, so none of the teams really shifted conferences. Indianapolis goes to a new city. Um, The Cardinals go to a new city, and the Raiders go to a new city. That's it. But they stay within their conferences and within their divisions, so no other changes. Okay. All right, let's go on to our next category called Changing the Game. So my first is uh, 1980. We had uh, the NFL implementing a 10-second runoff um, when the final two minutes of the half in game to prevent teams from deliberately taking penalties to save time. So intentional fouls, dead ball fouls, intentional grounding, throwing backwards pass out of bounds, things like that had, a, had an automatic 10-second runoff to disincentivize uh, teams from deliberately you know, committing penalties um, in order to save the time. Sometimes the time is more important than the yards. Right. Yeah, I was wondering about that. That's that's uh, super interesting to me because you see that every, I mean, almost every week. You know, you'll you'll see something about our ten second. It runoff. does happen from time to time where you see they have no timeouts. So the thing is, you can actually avoid the ten second runoff if you burn a timeout. Exactly. There'd be those teams with no um, timeouts left. They got yep. thirty five seconds on the clock and they commit a penalty. Now they have a ten second runoff. They now, and the clock still starts at at the whistle, right? Cause right. It should have been a. It shouldn't have been a dead ball. So, Correct. Yeah, that that's super interesting. So that, I was wondering where that came from. Uh, yeah, and I had Mike. Uh, Nineteen eighty. Um, there were uh, rule changes put in place uh, to put greater restrictions on contact in the area of the head, neck, and face. Uh, under the heading of personal foul, players were prohibited from directly striking, swinging, or clubbing. On the head, neck, or face. Starting in 1980, a penalty could be called for such contact, whether or not the initial contact was made below the neck area. So if you hit somebody in the chest and go up to their face mask or hit them, you know, their, your hand goes up to their face, it's still going to be a penalty. Yeah, so in the 70s, we saw like no more head slaps, right? So this right. expands off of that and just let's stay away from the guy's head altogether exactly. with, with your hands. Yeah. 
1981, they um, they outlaw stickum. For those who don't know what stickum uh-huh. is, it's this sticky substance that the, the some of the receivers and the defensive backs used to put on their hand. Now we just call them gloves. Um, <laughs> but back then, it was like a tar-like substance that would make it easier for these guys to um, to catch the ball. It was referred to as the Lester Hayes or the Fred Bolitnikoff rule. <laughs> I remember in, in high school... Uh football they were them putting you know if, if you went to the to the trainer's room to get taped up before practice or a game and they had like some sticky stuff they would spray on your you know to get the tape to stick to your leg or whatever your ankle or your hand or or whatever body part they were working on and some of the guys on on our team grabbed some and kind of put it on their their receiving gloves and it worked for a while but yeah, yeah they got i think the the coach found out and was not too happy so there's that funny scene from the replacements where Orlando Jones puts the stickum on his hand because he was dropping everything and uh, he put his hands together to clap at the you know to break from huddle and his hands stuck together he couldn't get <laughs> I do remember that man if, if you're a fan of this show you're a fan of football you should go watch the replacements with Keanu Reeves absolutely it was a good one even the, the dance sequences uh the jailhouse dance sequence <laughs> all right go ahead all right moving on um also in 1981 we had some additional passing rules players without certain eligible numbers have to check in with the refs refs before catching a pass and, and is that that's like mostly linemen right yeah, so the so that's a, what's important about the numbers. So anyone at the time outside of 80 to 89 and whatever running backs were supposed to be, they had to check in. So like Refrigerator Perry when he would come in at, at fullback or whatever, he cuz I've yeah, there's some video of him catching a few passes, so he must have had to check in even though he's in the backfield. That that's interesting. I always thought it was just the guys on the end of the line had to if they were eligible receivers had to... so any yeah anyone outside of the numbers have to check in and so when they do that obviously you're you're tipping your your uh, your hand to the other team because they also get to know that right so 1982 a huge moment for defensive players um, was the year the quarterbacks sack was an official statistic in the oh. NFL so that's that a, seems crazy that it was a huge moment. Then. Yeah. Yeah, very crazy. I mean, there isn't a lot of defensive, you know, stats for quite some time. Um, It was really offensive focused. And and to a certain extent, it really still is. Yeah, absolutely. So in 1983, it became illegal for a player to use his helmet, you know, off their head as a weapon. Um, This was enacted (laughs) because the Raiders' Lyle Alzado swung a helmet at an opposing player in a playoff game. Um, one of the things that I found through this decade and, and the next, at least, was there was a lot of like these outrageous things that happened, whether it's missed calls, uh, fumbled ball, balls fumbled forward, you know, people swinging helmets at each other that wow. caused major changes like Blitnikoff. These things are called the Blitnikoff rule. These things are called the Lyle Alzado rule wow. or whatever That's because of these moments. Yeah, it's crazy. And speaking of that, in 1984, um, they started giving out unsportsmanlike penalties for excessive ce- celebrations. And oh. this was in part uh, added because of Mark Gastineau. They called it the Mark Gastineau rule because they wanted him to stop doing his sack dance every time he sacked a quarterback. <laughs> so he had one year where he had 22 sacks, right. and that was the record for, I think, till the 90s when Strahan broke, yeah. uh, broke it. Maybe. Oh, sorry. It was the 2000s. Yeah, it must have been the yeah. 2000s. And, and, it, and 
and he held the record uh, until Strahan broke it in the 2000s. So, so in 1985, um, the kneel down and sliding rules were instituted, and this is primarily so um, to protect the quarterbacks. They don't want these guys kind of sliding and then other guys teeing off on them. So it marked it as a dead ball at the moment the player gives himself up. So the minute you, you kneel down in that scenario, it's it's down. And same with the slide. As long When the moment that you start your slide, the quarterback, that's where it gets down. Not where they slid to or where they hit the ground, but where they start their slide. Okay. Did not know that. And there is no pass interference when the pass is deemed uncatchable. So that's that's interesting as well. So if the ball's like flying way out of bounds or too far over somebody's head or something like that, it's not a pass interference if there's contact. The ball has to be put in a place where it's an opportunity for the offensive player to catch the ball in that's order good. to be pass interference. That's and, good to know, man. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And another benefit to the defensive back. This seems like the pendulum is swinging back a little bit to the defensive back. Yeah. You know, as re- receivers are out there, kind of getting all the, to, yeah, I mean, getting all that, the calls. Yeah, at that point, that was the hardest position on the field to play. They now have equal right to the ball. So if if they get their head wrapped around or turned around and they can get their hand up, they have the same right to the ball as the offensive player. So once that moment happens, pass interference doesn't matter anymore you just have the same right to the ball so i i mean i i love that rule you know watching defenses you get then that's about technique yeah get that inside leverage get that hand turned around and get up and get that ball and once you once you do that you're not going to get called yeah i like i like that Uh, i like to know that it's interesting to find out where these these uh rules came from so i love this yeah so 1986 uh instant replay um was introduced for the first time uh, however, the lack of technology and the fact that the delays were so significant, they're impacting games. Uh, it was eliminated in 1982. Um, it did return in 99 um, because they were able to address some of the issues that they had and put in kind of better rules for it and kind of what we have now. It's not perfect, but I definitely like it better when you're like looking at, did that guy get the toes in? Mm-hmm. What's it? Did it break the plane? You know, all those kind of things. I think it's important to get those right. Yeah, 100%. How they missed that pass interference in the the, the AFC or the NFC, NFC championship, championship game? Yeah. I don't know. That was crazy. And then uh, in 1988, Mike, um, yeah, and I, I only had a couple of the rule changes in here so uh, <laughs> that I was able to find. But in 1988 at the NFL annual uh, meetings in Phoenix, Arizona, a uh, 45-second clock was also approved to replace the 30-second clock. For a normal sequence of plays, the interval between plays was changed to 45 seconds from the time the ball is signaled dead until it snapped on the succeeding play. So the play clock was only 30 seconds up until that point. Made it made it a little uh, easier for the offenses to, to kind of get the and the defenses, I guess, to recover from the previous play. So Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, that ends the uh, category changing the game. Let's get on to our fantasy draft. So, Jeremy, uh, let's get started on our draft. I yeah, think I had the first pick a quarterback. Yep, you're up. For the 1980s. And my first pick, I mean, of course, um, Dan Marino. He, I picked uh, 84, 85, 86. He threw for a mm, pedestrian 14,000 yards. Um, being sarcastic, 122 touchdowns in that time frame, um, basically torched everybody. No one was close to him in that decade. 
Yeah, I took Joe Montana, who definitely did not have that many passing yards. Uh, he with, From the San Francisco 49ers, obviously, I, I chose him between 83 and 85. Uh, he had a, a little over 11,000 passing yards, 81 passing touchdowns, uh, threw in another 550 or so rushing yards and seven more touchdowns. Yeah, I didn't get a lot of rush yards out of Marino. I think during that period of time, he got minus 34. So oh, wow. Very much a pocket Negative three. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really happy uh, when I did the research to find this out. Randall Cunningham, one of my personal favorite players God, of when all you, time. When you texted me that you chose Randall Cunningham, I was so angry that I didn't think of him. Because <laughs> he probably scored more points than Joe Montana. I got to gotta assume. Let Go me see ahead. here. Yeah, so I picked 87 through 89. Um, he threw for 10,000 yards, 68 touchdowns, and ran for another 2,013 touchdowns. So that's my second pick, Randall Cunningham. And he finished just just below Joe Montana by about 20 points. Oh, great. Okay. Oh, I can see where this is going already. Uh, So my second quarterback um, was Dan Fouts from the San Diego Chargers. I chose him in 80, 81, and 85. And really only two of these three years were memorable years. Right. The, the third year was just kind of a throw-in, but the two years that he had were so good, I couldn't really pass it up. Um, he had over 13,000 yards passing and 90 passing touchdowns and then added another 70 yards rushing and a couple more touchdowns in that period. So, Yeah, he was our case study for the advancement in offenses and the rules changes that they right. made in 1978. He had three consecutive years, 79, 80, 81, of over 4,000 yards. Yeah. So, yeah, good choice. Yeah, yeah. And so then uh, running back first selection came to me, and there was no where I could go but – with the owner of the Trans A&M running back Eric Dickerson from the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, I chose him for 83, 84, and 88. He had 5,500-plus yards rushing and 46 touchdowns, threw in another uh, just over 900 yards receiving and three more touchdowns in those years. All right, so first of all, you called a Trans A&M? You didn't remember that from the uh, – from the thirty for thirty on SMU, no, he got a he got a he got a Trans Am, and all the people from uh, from SMU called it the Trans A and M because they knew Texas A and M gave it to him. Oh, that's genius. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for that. Oh man, way to throw that in there. That's yeah. that's quality stuff. All right, so my first pick um, was Marcus Allen. So I was actually pretty surprised. Surprised, um, how prolific he was actually. So uh, my first pick, running back Marcus Allen, eighty-three through five. He uh, rushes for four thousand yards during that period of time. Another um, two thousand receiving, and uh, hey, another one hundred sixty-five yards passing and three TDs uh, there. So I got a lot from that. from Marcus Allen. Can't beat that. Yeah, after you texted me that, I immediately went and looked up Bo Jackson, who had, a, like, my, like, eight-year-old brain remembered him as one of the best running backs ever, and, you know, but just, I, it, he was really just a flash in the pan. I was shocked. It was one year of significance, um, and I would say three years of relevance, 
before he got injured. But yeah, I, I, I definitely put him on the list for the 80s, but just was not there. Not at all. So, well, anyway, on, that was a side note. My bad. Uh, my next running back for the decade had to be Walter Payton uh, from the Chicago Bears. I chose him 1983 through 1985. He had 4,600-plus yards rushing and 26 touchdowns, another 1,450 yards receiving and four touchdowns, and he had 230 yards passing and six touchdowns. It's pretty impressive. So my second pick for running back is Roger Craig. I thought I had, like, a cheat code with this. Like, this this guy was pretty substantially good during the 80s so 1985 and then 88 89 those back-to-back super bowl years he uh, rushed for uh, 3600 yards 24 touchdowns another 2000 in receiving and eight eight touchdowns there so i was so disgusted with myself when you texted me that one because i thought i could slip him through to my flex and i couldn't i was very upset so, all right. You, you, you had first pick on receiver. Yeah, I'm not going to hip you to my full strategy, but one of the things that I do as I go through this is I'm never going to give up points. I don't, yeah. I'm don't. i not going to try to outthink the room. If it's Roger Craig has the next amount of points, I'm picking Roger right. Craig. <laughs> <laughs> so receiver, um, let's see what we got here. So my first pick for receiver was Jerry Rice. I mean, it, it, yeah. I have to. Yeah. 1986, 88, 89. He, um, 4,300 plus receiving yards, 41 touchdowns, another 112 uh, rushing and two touchdowns. Jerry Rice, the man, greatest receiver in the history of the NFL. Without a doubt. Hands down. Without a doubt. Uh, my first choice for wide receiver was Mark Clayton, uh, the Miami Dolphins, 84, 86, 88. Uh, He had... 3,650 yards receiving and 42 touchdowns and added another 70 yards rushing. So that was another thing. That was my strategy. I was hoping that you wouldn't have found Mark Clayton (laughs) because how prolific he was, you know, catching passes from Dan Marino, my quarterback. So good, good, good pick there. Um, I got James Lofton. Now I don't like him as an announcer, (laughs) um, but could he catch a football? Absolutely. So we got him from 81, uh, 83, 84. He um, had 118 rushing yards, uh, 4,000 receiving, 23 touchdowns during those years. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, my second wide receiver was um, Seattle Seahawks favorite, Steve Largent, uh, 81, 83, and 84. He had 3,450 receiving yards and 32 touchdowns. Uh Sprinkled in another 57 rushing yards and one touchdown. And he had uh, 11 passing yards, which I don't think even qualify for a point. But I just wanted to say it. And then I guess I get first pick on flex. uh, And I wanted to choose Roger Craig, but we already covered that. Um, My first flex choice was John Riggins from the Washington football team. I chose him for 81 83 and 84, uh, 3,300 rushing yards and 51 touchdowns and just a measly 100 yards receiving or so. Yeah, so my first pick for flex um, was uh, the aforementioned Billy Sims, that first round pick in the 1990 draft or 1980 draft rather. So I picked 1980, 81, and 83 
we have uh, 4,000 yards rushing, 33 TDs, and another 1,500 receiving. Uh, and five touchdowns there. So Billy Sims, yeah. Detroit Lions. I'm finding that I need to do a little more research and a little less talking trash. <laughs> uh, my next flex choice was James Brooks from the Cincinnati Bengals. Had him 85, 86, 89. Um, he had 3,200-plus yards rushing and 19 touchdowns, another 1,500-plus yards receiving and 11 touchdowns, and he had eight passing yards but one touchdown. So. So as you were making these selections, um, I for sure thought you were going for like um, Earl Campbell or something like yeah. that. So I had a contingency player, <laughs> and I was shocked. Gerald Riggs, Atlanta Falcons. Look at his numbers in the 1980s. It was, I mean, he was definitely a good flex pick. Yeah, um, so no doubt. Audience, look that up. All right, so my final pick, the aforementioned, Earl Campbell. Um, we have 4,600 yards rushing, 35 touchdowns. Uh, we have another uh, 419 um, receiving. Not a, not a big receiver, um, but, man, not if he wasn't a punishing, much. one of the most punishing runners in NFL history. Absolutely. Yeah, he was, he was a monster, man. All right, now for tight ends. So my first pick for tight ends was Kellen Winslow Sr., uh, San Diego Chargers, uh, 80, 81, 83. Um, really, really good you know, tight end for, for that era. Uh, 3,500 yards plus receiving, 27 touchdowns. Whew. Yeah, that, uh, that did some damage to my first choice which was Ozzie Newsome from the Cleveland Browns uh 81 83 and 84 and like these two were the only real superstar tight ends at the time I, I would say um Ozzie Newsome finished the, those three years with 2900 receiving yards and 17 touchdowns and another 20 yards rushing yeah so I found kind of a a gem in Todd Christensen the tight end for the Raiders, um, 3,400 yards, 27 touchdowns in his 83, 4, and 6 season. Yeah, that's pretty good. That is pretty good. Uh, I My second pick, I don't even know how to pronounce this guy. Mickey Schuler or Schuler? Schuler, yeah. Mickey Schuler, New York Jets, 84, 85, 88. Uh, he had 2,350-plus receiving yards and 12 touchdowns. Um I'm I I lost and I'm well, we'll get there. To, I'm, I'm just waiting for you to, to put me out to pasture. We'll get there. So um, okay, so then I, I'm up on kick, I'm kicker. on kicker. Uh, my kicker was Pat Leahy, also from the New York Jets, 81, 85, 88, 74 made field goals and 124 made extra points. There it is. All right, I had a guy named Mark Mosley. Now I didn't know who this was, but apparently um, was quite prolific during this period of time we have a total of 378 points for the years 83 84 85 so i've noticed it's not there's there's always like these outstanding players so like this it was marino for example quarterbacks and then the next one is pretty significantly down but you can make those up because Dickerson, for example, was far and above the rest 
of the uh, the running backs. So it's all about point differentials in a lot of ways. So um, that's that's how I've been looking at my strategy here is trying no, to close good. point differential gaps. So that being said, um, your total is sixty six hundred twenty eight point five. And yours is what seventy five hundred. It's not quite that high. Seventy one eighty one dot one two. So I'm coming back for the nineties. I th- I mean looking at like where you're picking and who you're going to have an option to pick unless you completely screw up your research <laughs> fingers crossed um you should you should uh, we should be tied by the end of the 90s all right all right yep you take the lead congratulations good draft all right so that ends obviously the fantasy draft category so now let's just get into our winners and losers yeah yeah, who are your uh, who are your winners, Mike? So my first winner, um, it's kind of the theme for this is Al Davis. So after the after the '70s, several teams having issues with revenue from their stadiums, stadium ticket sales and luxury box revenue was part of the NFL's revenue share, right? So teams like the Vikings, Rams, Raiders found it hard to compete in these older stadiums with very few luxury boxes. Uh, which make up a bulk of the NFL team's individual revenue. Right. So stadium, somebody, you know, everyone gets a piece of that. These luxury boxes and things like that. That's where these guys make their money. So Roselle threatened to move the Vikings to, um, we mentioned this earlier, threatened to move the Vikings if the city of Minnesota didn't help build a new stadium. They got the Metrodome two years later. Roselle also allowed the Los Angeles Rams to move 35 miles south to Anaheim. When it came to Al, who was looking for the same help, he was seeing an opportunity in the second largest media market in the U.S., L.A. NFL says no. Everything said and done, Al Davis and the Raiders won two Super Bowls in the 1980s, one in Oakland, one in Los Angeles. He kind of got what he want with the move. He beat the NFL in court. Um, so Al Davis, two Super Bowls in the, in the decade, uh, definitely a winner. So my first winner is the city of Seattle, Mike. We're we're seven years into our existence at that time. Uh, just had the you know Kenny Easley and Chuck Knox winning in uh, the '84 season. We have the team going to the uh, AFC Championship game against the LA Raiders in the '83 season after only seven years in existence. It was just a good time. It, the future was definitely looking bright. We had we had a very dark, dark couple of decades after that, but or decade and a half after that. But it it was it was good to be a Seahawks fan at that time in the early eighties. Yeah. So we talked about it earlier. Ground Chuck. We got he got the running back that he wanted in that eighty three draft, Kurt, Kurt Warner, Warner, with the yeah. third pick. We actually had the second pick. The other Kurt Warner. The other with the C, yeah. yeah. So we had the second pick in the '83 draft, so we would have come right after um, the Baltimore Colts. But both the Rams and the Seahawks were, you know, three and two respectively, um, had an agreement. Like the Rams wanted Eric Dickerson, and we wanted, and we preferred Kurt Warner out of Penn State. So we kind of did this gentleman's agreement. We have a little pick on the side. Um, the Rams go with the second pick. They get their man Dickerson. We come in with Kurt Warner. And from there, execute Chuck Knox's offense. And he was a really good pick for us until he hurt his knee. So. Yeah. It was a different time then. You tear an ACL and uh, your career's damn near I th- over. I, tr- I think about 
how good we would have been in that 80s decade um, and how that would have changed our trajectory into the 90s had that worked out. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah, a it could have been, yeah. The sky was the limit for sure. So like the city of Seattle, I, I added the Los Angeles. They had technically Los Angeles County um, didn't have a football team um, at the end of the 1980s, before the 1980 season with, you know, L.A. moving um, to Anaheim or the Rams moving to Anaheim. Um, but they ended up with the Raiders a couple years later and they got that Super Bowl. So they were the fans were able to celebrate a team and a Super Bowl win in 19 in that 1983 season. Yeah, absolutely. The you know my next winner was this is kind of just a silly one, but uh, it was Necrols because I've been watching a lot of highlight films from the eighties, and uh, you know I I don't think that Necrols were more prominent than probably the late eighties, maybe a little or in the early nineties as well. But uh, those big like uh, hulking uh, deals that the the mainly linemen Line, and linebackers, linebackers yeah. would wear on the on the back of their shoulder pads to, to kind of help their neck from snapping back too much so uh, yeah so neck rolls were a winner do you remember the straps that they had with the buttons on the top of the helmet so no. that, that it limited like head rotation movement no. or anything like that you don't remember I don't the straps remember. i never had one of those in, in peewee football or anything yeah i don't remember that but you've watched I, football yeah, no right? i don't even yeah i don't i can't even picture that in All a right. in a highlight film i'm looking that up though as soon as we uh, get off the mics here <laughs> All right, so um, I have the Washington football team. Uh, both of their Super Bowl wins uh, in this decade come during this strike-shortened season, um, so 1982 and 1987. Um, they did win 1987 with their replacement players winning, going 3-0 and in those three weeks, and that really put them at the top of the NFC during that period of time. So, Awesome. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good one. Um, my next winner is uh, basically us, Mike. We're, we're, we're both children of the 80s uh, and getting to play NFL video games for the first time, oh, um, yeah. which I think is cool. So, uh, And not just like on an arcade machine. In, in ni- starting in 1989, uh, the games NFL and Tech Mobile were released on the Nintendo Entertainment System, the original NES. Uh, Tech Mobile was actually the first with NFLPA licenses to have real players' names in the game, which is that. I mean, that was huge. You could play, you know. With, I, just remember, I can remember spending hours playing with uh, Christian Okoye on uh, original Tech Mobile in in 1989 through like 1992, probably. Untouchable, he was. <laughs> um. So my final winner. Um, for this decade is antitrust law. <laughs> so justice wins out, right? Uh, the Raiders moved to Los Angeles against the wishes of the NFL. Uh, this leads to several other teams moving in the 1980s, which we mentioned earlier, and then the 1990s, which we'll mention um, in our next couple of episodes. We'll talk about this. USFL actually won an antitrust suit as well. Again, yeah. we'll talk about that in, in, in a later episode. Absolutely. but um yeah yeah we almost law. yeah we almost lost the seahawks in uh in the early night or mid 90s i guess to anaheim so uh who were your uh who was your first loser mike so man i mentioned them so many times but it's like each decade there's another way that the cleveland browns 
can kind of be thrust into this category. So for me, it's definitely the Cleveland Browns. It's because of the drive and because of the fumble. So the drive was uh, in the 1986 AFC Championship game. Elway moves the Broncos 98 yards, scoring a uh, touchdown and giving them an opportunity to tie uh, the game. They eventually won that. So the Browns take it to an AFC Championship game. They are 98 yards away that you know from winning and Elway marches them back they win the game all right this can't happen two years in a row little did they know in the 1987 ASC championship game the Browns driving down the field for a chance to tie Ernest Biner fumbles the ball on the Broncos three-yard line and the Broncos recover end of game there go the dreams of all of the Cleveland fans (laughs) all of the Brown fans oh man believe land it died that day. <laughs> oh, that sucks, man. <laughs> a good one, though. A good one. So my uh, my only loser for the decade was, um, outside of yours, were, was the Miami Dolphins. Um, four first-place finishes in their division, made it to the Super Bowl twice, had, um, you know, it, what uh, Dan Marino. They had all the hype in the world. I mean – and they never made it back to a Super Bowl after after that uh, second one in the 80s. And, you know, like you had one of the best – probably I would say in the early 80s, arguably other than maybe Bill Walsh, probably the best coach in football. Maybe Tom Landry, you could say, was, was up there with Don Shula and Bill Walsh and just could not ever put it together. Had a couple opportunities and, and just – didn't didn't work out. They got beat upset by the Patriots to go uh, in that '85 season when they were the only team that had beat the Bears. And yeah, I just feel like you know, that that uh, that Dolphins team, they're they're losers. Yeah, I mean they they were right there a lot of throughout the decade. Uh, but you're right, they just weren't able to to finish it out. Could not get over the hump. So my next uh, loser is the Bay Area. Um, in 1989, October 17th at 5.04 p.m. Pacific time, a 6.9 magnitude earthquake hit. Um, all the primetime audience was focusing on the World Series at the time. Uh, San Francisco and Oakland um, were in the World Series together. Um, there was a game to be played at Candlestick Park at the time. Um, due, to the, to, due to the damage... Um, well, not at the time, but there was a, was a San Francisco 49ers game supposed to be played at Candlestick. Uh, but due to the damage, the 49ers had to move uh, the games to Stanford Stadium. Um, the A's would, however, go on to win the World Series, and the San Francisco 49ers would go on to win uh, the final Super Bowl of the decade. So I suppose the Bay Area got the last laugh, but that was a really tough time for them. Yeah, that was I – rem- I can – vividly remember watching that, that i was watching the world, world series, series at that yeah. time yeah all right my final loser is um nfl players so um they saw two strikes in the 80s uh, 1982 and 1987 um they entered into an unprecedented revenue share agreement uh, with the nfl owners uh, it sounded great when i first started reading it they distributed a percentage of the ticket sales to the players excluding the luxury boxes which the which the uh 
um, owners, owners to wanted to money, keep. Yeah. yeah. So what this did is led many of the teams to seek new stadiums that essentially moved the luxury boxes from the upper rim where these boxes were before down into the middle or lower sections, thus creating those what we call the nosebleed seats. So the nosebleed seats are the, the, the seats that are not as expensive. Mm-hmm. So a smaller share of the seat revenue actually goes to the player because they shifted the the, the luxury re- boxes down to yep more desirable location that those owners man they get them they get it right every time don't they and i guess the fans because now there's nosebleeds nosebleed right. sections like That's before a- before we were below that yeah, but I guess probably it made it cheaper for fans to get into the game, too. So, or possibly, I don't know. It's all relative, I suppose. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let's. Uh, that, that's it for our losers. So, let's get on to uh, who won the decade. All right. So, the winner of the decade is the San Francisco 49ers. They have a, des- a dynasty score of 42. Uh, their record was 104 and 47 for the decade. They made the playoffs eight times including four conference championships and four Super Bowls. Uh, they won in 81, 84, and then back-to-back in 89, or 88 and 89. So uh, Paul Brown, we've talked about him before, uh, his protege, Bill Walsh, takes that West Coast offense to the Bay Area and dominates the 80s. So what's really great about this West Coast offense is it, it raises the floor for teams that are less talented. Um, but what it also does is it raises the ceiling for teams that are well-run and well-put-together. So that's what we see here with the 49ers, is that Joe Montana, some have him as the GOAT, uh, threw for over 30,000 yards, 215 TDs, only 180, 107 um, interceptions, and completed an astonishing 64% of his passes throughout that decade. Wow. I would have argued... For him still being the GOAT until Tom Brady went to Tampa and won another Super Bowl. Yeah, so people argue that, not to go into a Tom deep dive, that he has potentially three Hall of Fame uh, uh, careers. Careers. Yeah, I've heard that too. How they break up his whole career into three sections and each one has Hall of Fame numbers. So. Right, yeah, which is wild. We'll probably unpack so. him over, I don't know, the 2000s and the yeah. 2010s. So. Absolutely, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, Yeah, so our runner-up for the dynasty of the decade was the Washington football team, and their score was 30. They were 97-55 and for the decade, made the playoffs five times, conference champs two times, world champions two times in 82 and 87. Um, And then a little side note, both Super Bowl wins were after a strike-shortened season. Maybe the Asterix team. Yeah, so that's, I mean, I didn't know that, like, inherently before I started doing the research. I'm just like, wait, the only two times they won in this decade, they, it was a short (laughs) season. So, I don't know, you look at those, that 99 Spurs team and um, in in the NBA and just the asterisks, you know, shortened season. Um, I don't know. Yeah, and I remember... um recently watching or uh, over the last few years watching a uh it was either 30 for 30 or maybe an nfl films thing about how the players the scabs that crossed the picket line and played for um 
those championship teams never got championship rings until uh, like five or six years ago. They finally presented them with rings and they, I mean, they went out there and battled their asses off. I mean, excuse my language, but they, they went really hard. And um, the fact that they didn't, you know, they weren't included in like any kind of NFL pension, like nothing, didn't even get a Super Bowl ring. And so uh, finally, and maybe one of the only classy things that Dan Snyder's ever done, uh, he, he gave those, those players uh, championship rings from those, from those two Super Bowls. So. Yeah. 30 for 30 year of the scab. Yeah. Very good. Very good episode. Great. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> so uh, my first honorable mention was the Oakland slash L.A. Raiders. They had a dynasty score of 21. They went 89 and 63 for the decade. They made the playoffs five times. They had two conference champions chips and they won the Super Bowl twice, 1980 and 1983. Um, honestly, we've covered them. Um, throughout this whole podcast. So there, this is important for all of the reasons we've already mentioned. So it was an important team for, um, for the league and um, honestly created a lot of the mobility and in, in the rules that we have nowadays that this fight that Al Davis had. Yeah, and I, you know, I was a little bit surprised they weren't closer to the Washington football team because I think there could be, there's an argument to be made for both of those teams on, um, you know, those Raiders teams, like the the silver and black and just like the kind of the aura around them was so enormous back then and i I remember i I was we were kids so you know it was those guys seemed like supermen or so you know with bo jackson and marcus allen and all these guys it was that that was a fun team to watch even though i would that that was the first time i started kind of enjoying watching another team outside of the seahawks yeah so as a sports fan, we watch a lot of sports things, sports documentaries. So that's, I think that's why we kind of bring up 30 for 30 quite a bit. But there's also another one about um, the significance culturally of the, the Raiders in L.A. Right. So there's a lot of other um, things that are important about the Raiders culturally and NWA, popular culture. Man, NWA made those Raiders hats popular, you know, exactly. more popular than they already were. Yeah, watch that 30 for 30. It's it's a good deep dive. Absolutely. And then uh, our, our last honorable mention team were the Denver Broncos, and they actually had a higher dynasty by decade score than Oakland or the, the Raiders uh, with a score of 26. Their record for the – their record for the decade – was 93, 58, and 1. Uh, made the playoffs five times. Conference champion three times. Three appearances in the Super Bowl. 0 for 3. We all know the story. Uh, you know, the, okay. the Broncos would play in back-to-back conference championship games, complete with nicknames. The drive and the fumble. Yep. Uh, and then they would lose to three different NFC opponents. Uh, the Giants, the Washington football team, and the 49ers. And for the most part, the games were not close at all. So, yeah, they fought their butts to get there. But, I mean, at the end of the day, they just weren't up to the to the challenge of the teams that they faced those years. So Yeah, and uh, the other thing, so I had no problem rooting against those guys because Brian Bosworth is a marketing genius and had everybody in Seattle hating John Elway with a passion with the Mr. Ed t-shirts. And I don't know if you remember those or not. And then uh, he also sold anti-Brian Bosworth t-shirts in Denver. 
So he was just he was raking in money both sides, and he was getting money from the Seahawks that he probably didn't really earn. So before his time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I slipped another one in here on you, okay? Um, because I thought that we needed to call this out. So um, my third and final honorable mention is the Chicago Bears, the '85 Bears. Um, they had a do it. dynasty score of 17, not very high. Um, 92 and 60 for the decade. They made the playoffs five times. Only one conference championship, and uh, they won the Super Bowl in nineteen then in the 1985 year. So um, they're historically significant due to their team's marketability. Chicago is the third largest media market in the in the nation. They had marketable players like Walter Payton. He was on Wheaties boxes. Jim McMahon. He was a walking billboard, gunslinging deep ball thrower. Like he had. What was it Adidas or you know the Adidas headbands and all that kind of stuff? I saw a, a clip of him wearing a rose uh, headband that said Roselle on it. Amazing. And I, I don't know what yeah, you know, it, it, just a shot or I'm not sure what it was what it was signifying. But um. of course they had a cool name for their defense, the Monsters of the Midway, and of course the sh- Super Bowl Shuffle. Everybody oh, kind of remembers that. that. Yeah. So that I think it was the first time we had like a, a pop song or rap song for for a team so they definitely were uh one of the most popular teams in part because of their marketability but ultimately because they were a fantastic defense and we've talked before about the um william refrigerator perry gi joes and i mean they were everywhere yeah exactly so of that team that 85 bears team there were five players and one coach that made it to the hall of fame walter payton mike singletary richard dent um, and Dan Hampton. We have uh, Mike Dick, obviously, as the, the coach that's in the Hall of Fame. Um, in the five seasons from 1984 to 83, they consistently battled the top teams of the NFC. That was the New York Giants, the 49ers, and the Washington football team. They were always in this mix, and one team or the other would, would win that. It's kind of like when you look at the top four or five teams in a conference in a given year they were one of those teams the one that every other team had to game plan for i love it man well there you have it our 1980s dynasty by decade winner and runners up and honorable mentions uh you know next week i know we're gonna call a little bit of an audible you can tune in to find out what that is it's called a, a teaser, Mike. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get after it. Um, we'll be back next week, like always. If you can like, listen, rate, review, and share this podcast, we would appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed it, and we will talk to you next time. So, and my favorite line from the Super Bowl Shuffle: "I'm Samurai Mike, and I stop him cold." Ooh.